If you would, open up in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. Give you just a moment to get there. Psalm chapter 1. I want to begin our time reading this passage from God's Word. Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Would you bow with me? Father, your word is powerful. So our prayer is simply this. That your word would work powerfully in our lives today. Father, help us in these next few moments to focus on your word. Help us to focus on you. Help us to focus on what you say about yourself and about us. Father, give us a desire to apply the truths of Scripture to our lives as Your Word is accompanied by the power of Your Holy Spirit that makes change in our lives possible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When God saves us, He doesn't leave us the same. He changes us. He gives us a new heart with new affections. Where we once loved the world, now we love God. Where we once lived for the things of this world, now we love God. Where we once sought the approval of the world, now we look for the approval of God. Where we once stored up earthly treasures, now we store up treasures in heaven. When God saves us, He doesn't leave us the same. He transforms us. And in one sense, this transformation is instantaneous. Like the moment that you turn from sin to Jesus, believing that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that his death on the cross was enough to pay the price for all of your sin and provide you with everlasting life, at that moment, God declares you righteous before him. That's what it means to be justified. It means to declare be declared righteous. That moment, God declares you righteous. You are justified, you are forgiven, and you are saved. And yet, you and I, even once and after we have 
been transformed in that way, we still live in this body of flesh in which we are still tempted to choose sinfulness over holiness. But God calls you, he calls me as Christians to choose holiness over sinfulness. And he places his spirit inside of us so that we actually can. We have the power to choose holiness over sinfulness. And then he places, um, he places his word in our lives. He places people in our lives. He does things so that we can then grow in that holiness, in that godliness. And that's where the non-instantaneous part of transformation comes into play. The moment that you trust in Jesus, God saves you. You are instantaneously transformed. But at that moment, you begin this non-instantaneous process of transformation that lasts for the rest of your life. This process of being transformed into the image of Jesus. Now, last week we saw that the Bible calls our role in this process training for godliness. Training for godliness. That word training is a really a, a gym word. It's a, it's a word that means work out. Go and get, get sweaty and and short of breath, and you expend energy doing this thing. And the thing that we're to be doing is training for godliness. I say our role in this is training for godliness because God plays a role as well. Ultimately, God is the source of any change for the good that happens in our lives. Any change toward holiness that takes place in our lives is by His grace. It's only by His grace that we are once and for all, transformed from sinners into saints. And it is only by His grace that we are daily transformed to look more and more like Jesus in our everyday lives. But even though it's by God's grace, we still have a role to play. You see, God pours His transformational grace into our lives, but He does so through particular pipelines, if you will. And we must position ourselves in front of these pipelines in order to receive His grace of growing us in the godliness which flows out of them. You could think about it like going to the gym. God has commanded us to train for godliness, and he has given us certain exercises that if we will do them, if we will engage in these exercises, if we'll be disciplined to do them, then it will result in us growing in godliness. Not because we are really strong, not because we're just really good at performing or doing these exercises, but because these exercises are the pipelines through which his transformational grace flows in our lives. God has said, you need to grow in godliness. Here's how you can grow in godliness. So we want to see what God has said, go to those places, do those things, and then we can expect to grow in godliness. The question then is, what are these exercises? What are the exercises in the gym of godliness? Well, just like walking to any gym, you can easily get overwhelmed by all of the exercise machines. You ever see a picture of one or maybe you go to a gym and, and uh, especially some of these that, uh, that uh, our collegiate athletes have. I mean, these gyms are massive. I see pictures of them and I'm just like, where do you even start, right? I mean, there's a machine for this, a machine for this, and you just line wall to wall with all these different kinds of machines. In the same way, there are many spiritual exercises that God uses to grow us in godliness. But just like working out your body, all of these spiritual exercises, which we often call spiritual disciplines, 
they can be broken up into three basic categories. Now, when you go to the gym to work out, there's three basic types of exercises that you do. You're either working out your lower body or you're working out your core, which is kind of your midsection, I guess. And then you're working out. You can tell I don't go to the gym very often. Um, and, and then and, or you're working out your upper body. Right. That's kind of the three categories of, of, of working out and, and strengthening your body, your lower body, your core and your upper body. Well, in a similar way, there are three categories of spiritual exercises that God has given us to help us grow in godliness. Now, in each of these categories of lower body, core, and upper body, there's a bunch of different exercises that you can do, right? So, for instance, you might do a combination of sit-ups or leg raises. And we used to call them six inches. I don't know if that's what they're still called. Or crunches. You might do a com- uh, excuse me, um, I just, I'm, I'm mixing them up here. Let me, I, I should go to the gym. <laughs> then I would know what I'm talking about. So, you gotta, you gotta, let's start over. You want to go to the gym and you, and you want to work out your lower body. So you do, you might do a combination of, of leg presses or squats or lunges to, to work out your lower body. If you want to work out your core at midsection, you might do sit-ups or crunches or, or those six inches things that I was talking about that make your stomach just burn like crazy. You've got to keep those heels off the floor just a little bit. Or maybe you want to work out your upper body, so you do this combination of bench press or curls or butterflies or whatever, all the different things you can do are. So many different exercises, but they really kind of all fall in those three categories. Now, if you walk in and, and to the gym and somebody hands you this long list, or they just go around and say, this machine does this, and 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 before you know it, you're just overwhelmed. Like, where do I start? What, I don't know how to wrap my mind around all of this. But if somebody would explain, listen, if you just think, work out your lower body, your core, and your upper body, there's all sorts of ways you can do that. You pick some kind of combination of those exercises. Just make sure you work out your lower body, your core, and your upper body. Well, it kind of makes it more manageable. So that's how I want us to look at these spiritual disciplines, these exercises that help us grow in godliness. In the gym of godliness, there are three main categories of spiritual disciplines or habits of grace. As we mentioned last week, they could be called. And these three categories are the word, prayer, and fellowship. The word, prayer, and fellowship. And a well-rounded spiritual workout includes listening to God's voice through his word, that's the Bible, talking to him through prayer, and fellowshipping with his people through participation in the church. Now, just like in the gym, there's all sorts of exercises that fall under these three categories. There's all sorts of ways that we soak in God's word. There's all sorts of ways that we can engage in communication with God and prayer. There's all sorts of ways that we gather with and then participate in the body of Christ through fellowship with one another. There's no book or chapter or, uh, or verse of the Bible that says, all right, here you go. Here's a list of all the spiritual disciplines. Here's a list uh, A to Z of all the spiritual exercises that you can and should engage in. Instead, what we find are instructions and narratives, principles and practices all throughout Scripture that inform us as to the methods or spiritual exercises which God has given us to grow in godliness. Now, today, I want us to think about that first category of how we're training godliness as the category of We just call it getting into God's word, or maybe we could call it getting God's word into us, soaking up God's word. Bible intake is another way you could say it. 
In the passage that we have before us, Psalm chapter 1, it doesn't give us five steps to study the Bible. It doesn't give us four tips for Bible intake. But what it does is it should deepen our desire to be filled with God's Word. Now, last week we saw that as Christians, the grace we've been shown by God should drive us to work hard at growing in godliness. Today I want us to see this, that delighting in God's Word is the central means through which God's grace for godliness flows into our lives. We want to train for godliness. That's our goal. And delighting in God's Word is the central means through which God's grace for godliness flows into our lives. See, here's the thing. I really believe that the main hindrance to us as Christians not spending enough time in the gym of godliness, getting into God's word or getting God's word into us is not a lack of methods or machinery, but a lack of awareness at the importance of God's word. Ultimately, we don't read, study, memorize, and meditate on God's Word because of a lack of access to it or a lack of awareness that it can be read, studied, memorized, and meditated on. I mean, think about it. We today, and in our society, you and I, we have more access to God's written Word than anybody in human history. Say, how can you make such a claim? Because I can pull my phone out at any time and read the Bible anytime. Who, when in human history has that been possible? In fact, for most of human history, people didn't even have the Bible. I mean, they, they had to have it read to them. We got more Bibles floating around than we know what to do with in our society here. Not only that, but we've got more Bible study tools than anyone in the history of the world. Um, we got books on how to study the Bible. We got commentaries that help us understand what the Bible is. We got all kinds of techniques that have been that people have come up with of how to study the Bible. And I'm not discounting any of those things. Those things are awesome. They're great. I'm thankful for them. But I believe we don't engage with God's word any more than we do because we fail to see its centrality in God's plan of blessing for his people and its eternal benefit in our lives. We don't pour God's word into us ultimately because we don't love God's word. I want to spend a few minutes today giving you some practical ways that you can get into God's Word. Just a couple of minutes spending time on those practical ways. But listen, those ways, those exercises will be worthless if you don't delight in God's Word. Because if you don't delight in God's Word, I can guarantee you, because I know from experience, you'll find plenty of excuses to neglect God's Word. In Psalm chapter 1, we find the most important contrast made between the two types of people in this world. There are all sorts of differences among humans. Just look around. In one sense, when you compare us to everybody else in the world, we're pretty similar. But even in this room, we're, uh, we got some differences. But at the end of the day, every person on the planet falls into one of two categories, the righteous and the wicked. And this book of Psalms is a collection of poems which engage our minds and our emotions for the purpose of helping us remain faithful to God in all the seasons of life by remembering and acting upon the truth about God. See, the righteous will take one path through the seasons of life and the wicked will take another. And as we'll see in this passage, those two paths don't end up in the same place. In this first psalm, our attention is drawn to a key difference between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous are in love with God's word and thus with its author, God. The wicked are in love with that with 
that which stands in opposition to God. That is sin or anything that is contrary to the word of God. We just share with you three truths from Psalm 1 regarding delighting in God's word. The first is this. Your attitude toward God's word reveals your place in God's world. Your attitude towards God's word reveals your place in God's world. We see this in verses 1 through 2. The psalm psalm begins with these words. Blessed is the man. Now that man refers to men and women. Blessed is the man. Blessed are humans. Blessed is the man um, who... Walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, I want you to think about this. The fact that these, this psalm begins with the words, blessed is the man, tells us something about us as humans. Listen, God's word is his self-revelation of himself. And one of the things we learn about God from his word is that he is very interested in human affairs. God has made it possible for humans to be blessed. He wants us to experience this blessing. And so he has revealed to us instructions and teachings so we would know how to be blessed. I'm thankful for that. I hope you are. We also learn from this phrase, blessed is the man, that this blessing is not automatic. It doesn't just automatically fall upon everyone. If it did, then there would not be a need for the category of the blessed man. We just all would be blessed. There would be no, no, no other category in which we could fall. The existence of a category called the blessed man only makes sense if there is another category of people who are not blessed. And we can skip on down to the very last verse of this psalm, verse chapter 6, to the very last phrase of the last verse, and we find the other category. You see there these words. But the way of the wicked will perish. But the way of the wicked will perish. That phrase at the end helps us understand what the word bless and the phrase the blessed man actually means. If the other category of people perish, that last word there in this psalm, then to be blessed at its most basic meaning here in God's word must mean to not perish. What does it mean to not perish? It means to live. Now, perhaps you say this. Well, Zach, aren't all humans alive? I saw you said there's two categories, the blessed and the perishing. But you said to be blessed means to live. Well, we're all living. At least at some point in our lives, we are alive. I would say yes. But the life that the blessed person has is not simply breath in our lungs and a heart that beats. Scripture tells us that you can have that kind of life, but still be dead and one day die. And after physical death, experience the painful, hopeless death of being separated from the life giving creator for all of eternity. On the other hand, the blessed person experienced true life. So what is true life? True life comes when you are walking in close relationship with the creator and then continuing to live with him forever, even after physical death on this earth stops your beating heart and takes the breath out of your lungs. True life extends beyond the grave. And so we have two categories of people here, the blessed and the perishing. And throughout this psalm, we see these two categories of people being contrasted with one another. As we read on in verses 1 through 2, we find the first contrast, and it, and it deals with what we feed ourselves. What we feed ourselves. You see, the blessed man does not feed himself on the ways of the world, but he feeds himself on the ways of God. 
Verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You see, this is the way of the world. And it stands in stark contrast to the other way, the way of God, which is found in his word. Verse 2 says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. That word law can be translated in instructions. You're just going to hear me use the phrase the word of God. That's what it's talking about. The law, instructions, the way of the Lord revealed to us in his written word to delight then. Go to that word delight. To delight in something is to find your joy in that thing. And if I delight in something, then I'm going to spend time with and fill my life with that thing, which is what the word meditate means. See, it says his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law. He meditates day and night. Those things go together. What you delight in, you're going to spend time doing. And to meditate on something is to is to ponder it or to roll it around in your mind. To think deeply about it over and over in order to act upon what you've been meditating upon. And we'll come back to that description of the blessed man's life and his relationship to God's word in just a moment. But let's use this description to understand verse one a little more clearly. The perishing man delights in and meditates upon the ways of this world. You see, he seeks the perishing man seeks to find joy in the world's explanation of life. He meditates upon the world's explanations of himself and the choices that the world says he should make. He sits at the feet of worldly counselors, sinners and scoffers. See, I I know one thing that's absolutely true about every human being on this planet. Maybe a couple of things, but let me share with you one thing. And that's this. As humans, we desperately long to know who we are and what our purpose is in this world. We long for that. I don't care where you go in this world. I don't care who you meet. That longing is inside of us. And God's word magnificently reveals to us the answers to these deepest questions of our existence as humans. The problem, though, is that in our fallen, sinful state, we, as Paul said to the Romans, exchange the truth about God for a lie. And we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. He says that in Romans chapter one. See, one of the many ways we see this in our culture and in other cultures around the world is in the fascination with astrology, which is a growing trend in our society. Now, notice I said astrology and not astronomy. Astronomy is simply the study of the moon and the stars and the planets and the solar system and everything in outer space. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I think God likes astronomy. He wants us to study the heavens because they are his handiwork and they reflect his glory and they are meant to point us towards him. Astrology, on the other hand, is not simply studying what's out there in space in order to learn more about what is out there in space. But it is looking at what is out there in space in order to explain who I am and what my purpose is in life. My little daughter, Sadie, loves looking at the stars in the sky. And I'm telling you what, you better have your earplugs on if she sees the moon, because she's going to scream at the top of her lungs. The moon, it's the moon. I mean, it'll about make you run off the road. OK, if she sees that thing. She's going to let you know. And we don't sit there, though, and look at the moon and the stars and go, now, let's learn things about us. This is your purpose in life, Sadie, because of what the stars say. No, but that's what astrology does. That's what astrology does. 
It's saying, well, the reason I'm like this or the reason I did this is because I was born on this particular month. And because of the ways the stars are aligned during this particular month, I'm destined to be like this or act like that. It's looking to creation for the answers found only in God's word. And listen, that's just one example of walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing in the way of sinners and sitting in the seat of scoffers. You say, Pastor, that seems a little harsh. It's just harmless astrology, to which I would say, no, it is not harmless. Because any time you try to figure out who you are and what your place is in this world, using anything other than God's revealed world, you are, in effect, rejecting what God has said about you for what humans say about you, which puts you in the category of the perishing rather than in the category of the blessed. But astrology, astrology is just one example. I just picked that one because... I heard about a news article recently where it's just becoming more and more popular. There are numerous ways to be entrenched in the council of the world. Television and movies, social media, school curriculum, agenda-pushing secular news networks, friends and family whose lives are not centered upon the Word of God. Listen, the council of the world is all around us. But on the flip side, our delight, Christian, is to be in the law or in the instruction of the Lord. And when you delight in something or someone you spend time with that someone or something if i say to you that i delight in my wife but in my practice i always choose work or buddies or hobbies or television or my phone over spending time with her then i really don't delight in her and the same is true christian of god's word if i delight in god's word then i will spend time soaking up god's word thinking deeply about what it says thinking deeply about the God that his word reveals and thinking deeply about the difference it should make in my life. Your attitude towards God's word reveals your place in God's world. Is your place among the blessed? Or is it among the perishing? Are you delighting in God's word? Truth number two, your attitude towards God's word reveals your usefulness in God's kingdom. Your attitude towards God's word reveals your usefulness in God's kingdom. God is building a kingdom. He is. We see that all throughout the pages of scriptures. It's one of the themes of the Bible that sometimes we overlook. I mean, think about Jesus. Some of Jesus' first words when he started his earthly ministry was repent and believe for what? The kingdom of God is at hand. God is building a kingdom. You can skip down to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 tells us that the Son... That is, Jesus is the king in God's kingdom. When God created the world, listen, when God created the world, humans were his loyal and glad subjects. But they soon rebelled against him by rejecting his word. You know the story. God said, don't eat of this tree. Satan, the deceiver, tempted the first humans to question God by questioning God's word. Did God really say? Did God really say? not to eat of this tree and then in the day you eat of it you will surely die and the rest as they say is history adam and eve ate from the tree they were told not to eat from they rebelled against their king and so god did what he kicked them out of the garden he removed them from his kingdom they were banished from the place where they lived in close fellowship with god however However, God already had a plan in place to bring rebellious people back into his kingdom as his loyal and glad subjects living under his rule and serving him as Lord. And God has a plan to make people useful once more in his kingdom. And that's the best place for us to be. 
serving under the loving lordship of our creator. Notice verse 3 and verse 4. There's a continued contrast between the blessed and the perishing as it pertains to their usefulness. The blessed person, that is the one who delights in and meditates upon God's word, is like a tree. But not just any tree. Not a scraggly, dying tree, but a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Notice the three descriptions of this tree. And they present a stark contrast to the perishing man and his usefulness or lack thereof. Notice that the one who delights in God's word is permanently nourished. He is planted by streams of water. Somebody's not walking by once in a while pouring some water on the roots. He's planted by a stream of water. It's a permanent nourishment flowing into his body because he is delighting in God's word. And notice also that he is appropriately fruitful. He yields his fruit in its season. At the right time, he acts the right way. He's permanently nourished and he's appropriately fruitful. And that third phrase, he is eternally alive. Its leaf does not wither. This is a tree that does not die. It is eternally alive. <clears throat> Listen, Christian. When we delight in God's word and spend time soaking up God's word, we have this permanent flow of nourishment, which becomes the fuel for living according to God's will in this world, producing the fruit of godliness, patience when our schedule is interrupted, faithfulness when life gets hard, love when we are hated, self-control when we are tempted, joy when sorrows come our way. We don't just produce this fruit temporarily. But this is a godliness that extends into eternity. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says this. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And listen to me. So will the man, so will the woman, so will the boy, so will the girl who delights in God's eternal word. This is someone who is useful in God's kingdom. They're producing fruit. But on the other hand, the perishing, described here as the wicked, are not permanently nourished. They're not appropriately fruitful. They're not eternally alive. Instead, they are malnourished, unfruitful, or if they're producing fruit, it's bad fruit. And they're on their way to eternal death, not eternal life. Instead of a tree, the psalmist describes them as chaff. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. You say, what is chaff? Well, Chaff is basically the small, useless particles left over after the good part of wheat is extracted. So you're harvesting wheat and you get the good part out of there. And then there's these particles and this kind of dusty particles that's left over. It's just the little pieces of the stalk and this little pieces of whatever that's not good for anything. And so as as they separated the good from the bad, you know what happened to the bad? The wind just blew it away. And they didn't care because it was useless to them. When you delight in the ways of the world rather than in God through His Word, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just just being honest. You're useless in God's kingdom. God wants us to be a part of His kingdom and wants to use us in mighty ways in His kingdom. But if we're we're not filling our lives with His Word... We're filling our lives instead with the counsel of the wicked and the ways of this world. We're, we, God cannot use us 
for his kingdom purposes. God's kingdom is full of fruitful trees, not useless chaff. Your attitude towards God's word reveals your usefulness in God's kingdom. So let me ask you a question. Are you useful in God's kingdom or are you useless in God's kingdom? Now let me ask it this way. Are you delighting in God's word? The third, third truth we see about delighting in God's word is this. Your attitude toward God's word reveals your position in God's judgment. Your attitude toward God's word reveals your position in God's judgment. Look with me at verses 5 through 6. These verses focus on the future of the blessed and the future of the perishing, or as these verses call them, the righteous and the wicked. Because the wicked have not delighted in God's word and therefore are useless in God's kingdom, they will be punished in the coming judgment. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Verse 4 described the wicked as being driven away. Verse 5 describes them as being unable to stand. And verse 6 describes them as perishing. Listen to me. Judgment is coming for all people. God's word tells us that over and over Those who have stood in the way of sinners will not be able to stand when sinners are judged. They will not be counted among the congregation of the righteous, but will be banished from God's kingdom forever. Their delight was in that which was opposed to God. And so they will experience the opposition of God forever. But not so the righteous, not so the righteous Not so this blessed man from Psalm chapter 1. Instead of perishing forever, the blessed person, the person whose delight was in God and in God's ways revealed in God's word, will live forever. He or she will experience eternal flourishing in the sweet presence of God forever and ever. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, for the way of the wicked will perish. Your attitude toward God's word Reveals God's position and God's judgment. But let me ask you a question. Will you be able to stand or will you perish in the judgment of God? Or let me ask it a different way. Do you delight in God's word? Now, there's a danger in what I've said. There is. The danger is that you or I would think that the way to get on God's good side is by picking up God's word and spending time in it. The danger is that you would think the way to heaven is by simply reading or studying God's word. The danger in this is that you would think that your place and usefulness and position are determined by your knowledge of God's word or the amount of time you spend in God's word or how disciplined you are to read and study God's word. The problem, though, is that you can be an expert in God's word. You can know what it says backwards and forwards, but never actually delight in God's word. And if you don't delight in God's word, you're not delighting in the God who is revealed in his word. Here's what I mean by that. You can memorize the whole Bible and still be on your way to hell. The Pharisees were in that boat 
they knew the they knew they knew the scriptures better than anybody else. You know what Jesus called them? A brood of vipers. They knew it. But their hearts had not been transformed. You see, this passage is awesome. I love Psalm chapter one. I do. It, I, I put it to me. I don't say this to, to brag. I just say this to let you know how much. I, I put Psalm chapter 1 to memory years ago. And I would encourage you to do the same. I love Psalm chapter 1. But, but here's the problem. If we walk away going, the point of this is I need to read God's word more and delight in God's word more. We kind of miss something. In fact, we've missed something pretty, pretty heavy. We are born into this world delighting in the things of this world rather than in the things of God. You see, the danger is that we would assume that we are automatically righteous, but we are not. That we automatically somehow delight in God's word, but we don't. We have inherited a sin nature from our father, Adam, which means like Adam, we are banished from God's kingdom and no amount of effort on our part will restore us back into the kingdom. Why don't you remember what I said when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden? God already had a plan in place to restore rebellious humans back into his kingdom. And it revolved around the coming of a man born of woman, he says in Genesis chapter 3. You see, if we're going to delight in God's word, we need God to change our hearts. Listen, if you're here today and you say, listen... I, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to be honest. I, I don't delight in God's word. Like, that's not the most important thing in my life. You can look at my life. I'm just going to be honest. If you look at my life, you will see that I don't delight in God's word. And I'm, I'm going to be honest again and just say, I don't know how to delight in God's word. I don't know where that comes from. Well, I'm going to tell you something. It doesn't come from inside you. It doesn't. It comes from a supernatural work of God from the outside invading your life and changing your heart so that you will delight in God's word. See, here's the thing we need to see in this passage. There has only been one man who has not walked in the counsel of the wicked, nor stood in the way of sinners, nor sat in the seat of scoffers. There has only been one man who has perfectly delighted in God's word and has filled his mind with only God's thoughts. There has only been one man who has earned the right to be called a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. There is only one man who has prospered in all that he did and his name is Jesus. It's not you and it's not me. You and I only deserve to be counted as chaff and perish under the righteous judgment of God. But that's where the bad news of our rejection of God's word takes an amazing and good news turn. Because that blessed man, Jesus, chose. Listen to this. He chose to be driven away from God the Father as he hung on the cross and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That blessed man, Jesus, he chose to experience the wrath of God as he died in our place for our sin. That blessed man became chaff for us so that we could become a tree like him. The Apostle Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Listen to me. Our 
only hope is to cast ourselves upon this blessed man in repentance and faith. And when we do, he will rescue us according to his grace. You know what will happen? He will join us to himself and he will count us among the blessed. He will transform our affections so that we delight in him and in his word. He will change our hearts so that we find joy in meditating on the life-giving word of God, which points us to the word made flesh, the one in whom true joy and blessing is found. Our hope. Your hope, my hope, is not in our ability to read and study and memorize and apply God's word to our lives. Our hope is in Jesus who rescues us from our inability to delight in God's word. And when our hope is in him, then he changes us and he sets us on a new path where we do delight in God's word through the, in God's word. And therefore, we delight in God himself This is what I want you to see. Our attitude toward God's word does not determine our place in God's word, our usefulness in God's kingdom or our position in God's judgment. But our delight in God's word does reveal where we stand in relation to God. Because I can guarantee you this. If you have a saving encounter, with the Lord Jesus Christ. You will not be able to keep yourself. Out of God's word. It will reveal. What the grace of God has determined. In your heart. Maybe for someone here today. You can't delight in God's word. Because you haven't yet had your heart. Transformed by God. What you need to do then. Is you need to turn to Jesus. You need to believe in him. You need to ask him to forgive you of your sins. You need to declare that your trust is in Jesus Christ alone. That He is your hope in life and in death. He is is the salvation of your soul. You turn to Him in repentance and faith and He'll save you. For many of you, you have believed in Jesus. Your heart has been transformed. But I wonder, I wonder, is your salvation evidenced by the way you delight in God's Word? Listen, none of us are perfect. I know that. But we ought to be striving to be perfect in every area of our lives. And that includes delighting in God's word. I said that one of the main categories of training for godliness was Bible intake, getting God's word inside of us. There are many ways to go about that broad category, many exercises under this category of God's word. I told you I would spend just a couple of minutes on just some practical things. I'm going to spend just a couple of minutes and then I'm going to encourage you to come back tonight. And we'll dive a little bit deeper into some of the practical ways we can get God's word into us. But let me just give you a few. You know, for starters, we could read it. I mean, that's a great place to start. Read God's word. You can listen to God's word. There's all sorts of ways that you can listen to God. You listen to God's word while you're riding down the road. There's 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 apps on your phone for that. All right. If you don't have one of these, you can get it on a CD. You can listen to it. You can study God's word. Not just read, but dive in and, 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 and try to figure out what's there and what it's saying and how it applies to your life. You can memorize God's word. In fact, God's word tells us to memorize his word. That's a great way to get it inside of you. Meditate on it. That means to sit and ponder and think deeply about God's word, rolling it over and over in our minds. You can journal through God's word. Don't get scared by that term. I don't really like 
journaling, okay, it's not my thing. But all I mean by that is taking a pen and some paper and write down what God taught you in his word that day. It can be three words, but you write it down so you can reflect on it later. You can pray through God's word. You can be taught God's word. Listen, got lots of opportunities here at at our church to be taught God's word. There's Sunday school classes. There's a sermon on Sunday mornings. There's Bible study on Sunday evenings. There's Bible study on Wednesdays. If you miss, if you're sick, we've got an app where you can listen to the sermon. It's called sermon.net. Go on your app, not now, but after I'm done, and, uh, and download it. Look up, search for our church name, search for my name, and it's got all of our sermons for, for I don't know, a couple years now on there. You can, you can listen to it if you miss. The problem is not that we don't have access to God's Word. The problem is we don't delight in God's Word. One, one special point of application I just have in my heart to, to, to share as we get ready to close. Parents, this is, I can't stress how important God's Word has got to be in your lives as you are raising your children. Parents, do your kids see you delighting in God's Word? How often do they see you sitting in a chair in your home with an open Bible? How often do they hear you and your spouse discussing God's Word and what He is teaching you? Do they see you with your Bible open, listening intently as the pastor preaches? Do they hear you on Saturday night saying, let's get to bed so we feel energized to learn from God's Word tomorrow at Sunday school and in the worship service? Did they see you drop them off on Wednesday nights at church and leave? Or did they see you drop them off and head across the parking lot for adult Bible study? And I want to get even more specific with one question. And that's to our men. Men. How often do you lead your family to read and talk about God's Word in your home? Our children are growing up surrounded by the counsel of the wicked and the way of sinners and the seat of scoffers. And God has given you and me, parents, the responsibility of surrounding our children with His words and setting an example for them of what it looks like to delight in God's Word. Don't neglect this most central responsibility of your parenting. And then I'm going to end with a word of warning. I want to go back to that word scoffers. You see that word at the end of verse 1? Sit in the seat of scoffers, or maybe here it says mockers. Scoffers are those who are so entrenched in their sin and the worldly counsel which they have followed that they laugh at the things of God. So it means to scoff or to mock at something. It means to make fun. Somebody scoffs at you, they make fun of you. These scoffers are so entrenched in the ways of the world that they laugh at the things of God. So here's my word of warning. They will mock you and they will call you a fool if you delight in God's word. They will mock you and call you a fool for believing that God spoke the world into existence in six days. 
They will make fun of you and call you a fool for believing that God flooded the entire earth to save one family in a large boat. Listen, the world will laugh at you and they will call you a fool for believing that God rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt, parting the waters of the Red Sea so they could escape on dry ground. They will deride you and call you a fool for believing that a baby was born to a virgin and that this baby was fully God and fully man. They will ridicule you and they will call you a fool for believing that this God man walked on water, that he calmed storms, that he healed the sick, that he raised the dead, that he died for sin, that he rose from the dead, that he ascended back to heaven where he sits at the father's right hand, waiting for that day when he returns as king of kings and Lord of lords to judge the living and the dead. They will scoff at you and they will call you a fool when you say that this Jesus is the way, the truth and the life and that no one comes to the father except through him. But listen, they're not really scoffing at you. They're scoffing at God's word. And therefore, they're scoffing at God. And thus, they are perishing. Because the end of this psalm tells us that they will not survive God's judgment. And Psalm 2, if you wanted to read ahead, tells us that God will have the last laugh. Almost literally it says that. So here's just my closing challenge. Don't worry about what the world says. Teenagers, build your life on God's word. Don't worry about what the world says. Parents, don't worry about what other parents are doing. You center your home on the word of God. The end of Psalm 2 says, blessed are all who take refuge in the sun. So here's what I say. Let the world scoff. You Christian, you take refuge in the Son of God, delighting in God's word and enjoying God as you grow in godliness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Penetrate our hearts with it. Challenge us. Convict us. Lead us to repentance. Lead us to trust in you. Lead us deeper and deeper into your word, delighting in it because your word reveals you to us. And Father, we delight in you, the God who has created us and who has saved us. Father, but we thank you for Jesus, the blessed man who transforms our hearts so that we can delight in that which is truly delightful. Father, the things of this world may look all shiny and glamorous on the outside, but they're full of death on the inside. Father, you revealed to us in your word that is life, life more abundant than anything this world could ever offer. Thank you for your word. Help us to delight in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.